Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today's episode is a little different and is in partnership once again with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. I'm pleased to welcome three guests to the show, Aleu Gareng, head of the Mediation Support Unit at the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, or EGAD, as well as EGAD's delegate to South Sudan, Kholud Kerr, an independent analyst who heads Confluence Advisory, a think tank based in Khartoum, and Simon Mulongo, a former MP in Uganda and former deputy head of the African Union mission in Somalia. Thanks for joining us for this discussion. So I think we have to start off given the events of what's going on in northern Ethiopia. Obviously, war has broken out again. Uh, this time, it's rather blatantly a regional war, uh, even more so than last time. Casualty figures are difficult to come by, um, exact ones, but all indications are that it's been very, very deadly, probably deadlier than any other conflict uh, we see going on in the world right now. Aleu, I wanted to start with you. Why has the region responded so quietly given the regional implications of the conflict thus far? Yes, the IGAD region has employed a lot of silent diplomacy behind the scene, trying to to make sure that the parties come to the negotiating table. There had been an African Union-led mediation process, and uh, based on that, IGAD did not want to appear like it's in competition with the African Union. We are supporting the efforts by uh, President Obasanjo, and therefore uh, regional efforts are in line to streamline also the same African Union initiative. Just quickly, why is it that the African Union is mediating the conflict as opposed to EGAD? Two things. The first is that EGAD suggested a mediation process in the last summit of heads of states and government held in Djibouti. Once the conflict was apparent, inevitable, it's going to happen. 2019, Prime Minister Hamdok was in charge. But given the sensitivities of the conflict between Sudan and Ethiopia at the time, the the Ethiopian government did not feel it's right time for the mediation to take place, at least led by IGAD. That was followed with a lot of diplomatic engagement by IGAD member states with the the authorities in, in Addis Ababa to try to persuade them that it's better not to get involved into the conflict, but try to address the differences before civil war erupts. Unfortunately, it was out of hand. The the second thing is that the African Union seat is in Addis Ababa, and it's in the best interest of the entire African continent that the African Union handles some of the, the issues around the negotiations. It was seen to be the preferred solution Kholud, obviously this conflict has implications that are not confined to Ethiopia, uh, both given the large outsized role that Ethiopia plays in the region, but also considering where the conflict is taking place, uh, so close to the borders of Eritrea and Sudan, and of course, very directly uh, involving Eritrea in particular. How is this war affecting the situation in Sudan? How is the war being felt there? Well, war is good business for generals, and we happen to have a general in charge now after last year's coup. So, you know, in many ways, the regime and and its leaders has been able to use the conflict in Tigray to stay in power and to sort of create a narrative around its need to be around and its need to be in the position that it's currently in, despite a lot of consistent and robust rejection and resistance from uh, the people of Sudan. So it's it's a very convenient tool, if you will, particularly on its doorstep. But of course, it does complicate matters because what you're seeing across the region is 
all of these states are prone to fragmentation. The two newest countries in the world are from this region, South Sudan and Eritrea before it. And what we have are successive governments in this region that have been undergoing processes of state consolidation for quite a while and often quite unsuccessfully. So Ethiopia's problem and Sudan's problem are very, very similar. But we also have this insularity within these countries, which means that they're very inward looking. And they're very much because of this desire to to undertake state consolidation. They're not really in a position right now to help each other sort out their problems. If anything, it seems to be a conflict in one country feeds the conflict in the other. And that's a very dangerous prospect. So there's been a lot of talk of Sudan getting pulled into the conflict um, and concerns that will get pulled into the conflict even more. It obviously borders Ethiopia very close to the war in Tigray. There's been training inside Sudan, lots of talk of Sudanese facilitating arms flows uh, to the Tigrayans. So how have you seen Sudan getting pulled into this conflict, practically speaking? I would go as far as to say that Sudan is party to the conflict in as much as it can be without actively having troops on the ground. I think there is a very real danger that Sudan will get sucked into um, what's going on militarily in in northern Ethiopia. The, The danger is, of course, that with Sudan already being quite unstable politically and economically, the sort of the last thing that Sudan needs right now in this very fragile state is to have a war sort of impinge on its communities across the border or to indeed be militarily involved in a conflict. Simon, given all this, both the, both the scale of it, but also the, the threat that it poses to the stability, not just of Ethiopia, but of the broader region, why do you think it appears that the broader region hasn't appeared very seized in really spearheading efforts to resolve this conflict? I think the conflict structure itself seems to be mainly seated between Ethiopia and apparent Sudan because of the border dispute and also largely looking like it's internal to Ethiopia with the the leadership in Addis Ababa wanting to play it that way. They have been quite uninviting to allow external intervention with the argument that uh, this is an internal matter and that they will contain it. So because of that, there have been some kind of reservations as to how the external actors could make an entry. Even when the AU tried to come in, it was at a, some kind of struggle, even to accept a mediator. Uh, finally, the issue rested with the General Bassanger. And even with General Bassanger's role, there's been a lot of restrictions in terms of access, in terms of involvement, and as such, the performance has been more or less subtle. So... To this end, I think until and until uh, Sababa opens up, there will be very little intervention. Do you think the fact that the African Union is headquartered in Addis Ababa, do you see that as an unresolvable conflict of interest? Is there any way to alleviate concerns about that? Yes and no. Not in the sense that the AU has its own mandate and, and role it can play. But yes, because the events towards the there were rough actions on the on the part of uh, Sababa, in which some people were earmarked and um, hunted down, including some employees within the AU Commission. Actually, could have been protected by the the protocols, but that was not done, and it was so fervent that uh, in terms of coercive measures and all that, it sent some threat. <laughs> so one has to be very careful how you want to go against the the, the interest of um, the regime and others. So I want to talk more about the region generally. Um, Ethiopia, of course, is is one of the places where a quote-unquote political transition hasn't gone the way that many people have hoped. 
Uh, Sudan definitely fits in that category, um, as do a few other countries, I'd say, um, in the broader region. I wonder if there's any trends that we're starting to see, given, given the number of these political transitions, and if there's any lessons learned that maybe we can unpack in real time about what's working um, in some places or really what's not working in, in some of these countries, which, which of course appear very context-specific, but they're all happening uh, next to each other, and I'm hoping we can pull some, some threads from them that are more broadly applicable. Kolu, do you, do you have any reflections on the Sunnis' transition, why it hasn't gone the way many hoped, that we might be able to, to expand to, to other places as well? I mean, let's start with the region. Uh, the region is one of the youngest in the world, it is a region that is very susceptible to climate change and coupled with very poor governance that we've seen across the region. We have seen a lot of migration, outward migration as well. And I think those three things, young population, climate change and migration, have left an indelible mark on the region. And this has shifted things internally within these countries. Um, certainly in the case of Sudan, you know, you have a pro-democracy movement that started off pretty much in 2013, was able to unseat a dictator and his deputy within the space of, you know, six months through consistent protests, demonstrations, strikes, civil disobedience, etc. And that is very much youth initiative. And and it brings with it a, a shift in Sudanese politics away from mobilization based on sectarian identity or even ideological identity and much more towards issues-based politics. What we have seen is that the political class have been very slow to respond to this. And this is both political parties and the military and the ideologues behind the military, namely the Islamists. And so what you see is an exacerbation, actually, of the very factors that led to this change. So you see poor responses to climate change. You see increased migration because this lack of ability to respond to the political needs of the of the time have meant that there are no you know, jobs or economic growth, etc. So we're sort of stuck in this vicious cycle, I would say, in Sudan. And this can be seen elsewhere, you know, in Eritrea, again, very young population, very irresponsive and poor governance. We're seeing this all across other parts of the Horn as well. We need to have sort of solutions that look at all of these things in tandem. It's not, you know, uh, I think sufficient to say, it's, it just requires a change of leadership, the right people in the room. It's going to be far more systemic than that. And I think we need to have the, the time and resources committed to, to making that happen. When there are these peace deals or changes in government and political transitions, uh, there's usually a lot of outside goodwill, a lot of outside support that ends up flowing in to support these processes. Do you think that's been very helpful in the Sudanese case? When the new transitional government took office under Prime Minister Hamdok as the executive, with, of course, a very strong and very dominating military contingent. There was a sort of renewed sense of hope, I think, by the international community in Sudan. For the first time, there was access to the corridors of power, which had been impossible during Bashir's time. And there was sort of a sense that there was a like-minded government in place, even despite the, you know, the presence of effectively a military that is infested with Islamists. What we saw, however, was a very slow response, financially speaking, by the international community. So, you know, there were lots of sort of pretty words in, in the first instance, and they weren't really followed up with serious commitments. And that's partly or mostly, I would say, because of the slow bureaucratic processes um, from, you know, 
bilateral countries as well as the multilateral institutions. So by the time that some of this funding had started to sort of come through, the Islamists and then the military had already started to engineer the coup. Now, I don't think that simply having money in Hamdok's hands would have necessarily allayed the coup. The coup took place because the generals that led the coup were afraid of security sector reform or reforming their militaries, financial accountability and being brought to sort of justice around the crimes committed since Darfur until now, political crimes, it's war crimes, etc. But he would have had a lot more leverage to show dividends of the revolution a lot more quickly. And we would have seen that, I think, manifest differently now since the coup, with people wanting to bring about uh, a return to transition a lot quicker. What we have now is the sort of proof of concept that has to be brought about yet again by pro-democracy actors to say, even a slow, financially crippling transition is still something worth betting on and still something worth uh, fighting for. Simon, let me just ask you, why is it that it looks like these political transitions seem to be running out of steam? We see demands for change from the young populations uh, from many countries in the region, and it just looks like the politics are somehow getting stuck in terms of responding to those sorts of demands. So I'm just wondering if you have any reflections on why. The age difference uh, between the those in power and the young ones is creating serious tensions. And I think we're seated on a, a powder cake. It's an explosion that uh, if we don't really handle, it's going to be much worse than the Arab Springs. But of course, the young people seems to be driven by other than um, political ambitions, uh, but also driven by unemployment and uh, poverty and uh, lack of hope that they can actually climb the ladder of economic nature to be able to acquire and be resourced like the senior people they see around. I think that most of sub-Saharan Africa, the military remains a key factor. And until you control the security apparatus, which many of these regimes instrumentalize, you cannot really take power and, 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 and control it. And so the young people do not have access to that. It's not just purely a matter of rights. It's not purely a matter of democracy. There are other things that are at play. So I think the attempts to do that seems to have short-lived uh, results. The other one is um, the expectations some of these uprisings, the revolutions come with a lot of expectations. But at the end of the day, they don't fulfill the promises. They find that things they thought were easier are actually harder than it is internally, but also geopolitically. So in the end, they end up being frustrated and frustrated as the audiences that initially had hopes in them. So at the end of the day, they collapse. Do you have any solutions for that? What's going to ultimately... Uh, release this pressure valve in a, in a non-explosive way? I think it's very important that there is dialogue and interaction between uh, certain levels of edge groups and the uh, occupation. There should be a mechanism. Once you go into power system, particularly like civil service, people should be able to really give in and retire at the right time uh, so that the system is flowing. So that's one, because of uh, abuse to the flow of the system. The other one is the young people have been given lip service. Like where I come from, we have the youth structures from the lower point to middle level to the high level. They even have youth councils that they are at, at, at national level. But that's it. It's not enough to just have them there, but they should be able to be integrated 
into development plans, planning and execution of our programs so that they can come to test the realities, so that they can cut down to the ambitions and so on. And, and, and also empowerment to check down on poverty, check down on employment. They should be uh, empowered in a manner that they're able to be productive so that they don't look at one only avenue, say in politics, to be able to. The government should play it out in such a way that it is not through politics that one can become enriched and become powerful and resourced. Corruption, which has tended to take the lead in most of these economies, must be checked seriously. Otherwise, the population, particularly the agile, youthful communities, are going to sustain the agitations. I mean, I agree with Simon on the supply side of that. Yes, some of these people have been holding on to power for a very long time, well beyond the time they're meant to, and those that have set up the formula that one must have political power in order to have economic opportunity. Yes, that all needs to change. I totally agree with you on that count. But I disagree with you on the demand side. That is that these are just young kids who have a lot of expectation, a lot of ambition, and are sort of these restless youth. I think what we're seeing is because partly of the demographic trends, we're seeing a new type of politics emerge. I don't think it's enough to just insert or integrate young people into existing structures. I think they must be allowed to also forge the kind of structures that work for them, that work for exactly what they want. And I think that's where the frustration comes. Because even if you were to integrate graduates, let's say, into a really poorly functioning or an inadequate system, they will very quickly become frustrated with that. And I actually don't think that, you know, youth sort of rising up in, in the region as we have seen, whether it's in the Middle East and North Africa or indeed in, in the Horn, is a threat. I mean, we're very fortunate in Sudan that the resistance on the streets for over almost a decade has been peaceful and it has been unarmed because in Sudan, you know, we used to have one rebel uh, movement. Now we have, what, 20? The rebel business model suggests if you want a seat at the table, if you want economic opportunity, you pick up a gun until a mediation or peace process gives you a seat at the table. That is not the avenue that young people today are uh, following. And I think that should be celebrated. And I think that should be encouraged. Youth need to have their voices, and they don't need permission to express those voices. In my own uh, assessment of Sudan, I think the, the power sharing between the forces for change and the military was uh, hasty. There, there should have been a, a, a discussion, a mediation if needs be, with the actual people who caused the revolution. As much as there are people who call themselves the forces for change and now they, they they turn out to be parties or people who belong to parties that were known uh, politically in Sudan, they were not the ones who were driving that change. It was youth. Those youth lost their voice because they were not consulted. Now a new power sharing was created. Even after the coup, the same youth are still in the street protesting, which means there is no space where they are accommodated and there is a space where they are listened to. And, and governments in these countries in the region need to start listening to the youth. So it's not only participation in power, it's actually revolutionizing power and even political space. Because most of the political parties we have may have youth apparatus, but youth don't get to be heard or have their visions realized. They need to create something new. And that's something new we need to start testing 
whether it will work or not, that's something else to be said. Thanks, all. I, I, I want to pivot from uh, that fascinating discussion. Um, we've talked quite a bit about the region being in a, a bit of disarray, to put it mildly. Increasingly, we are seeing a lot of outside actors getting involved in the Horn of Africa, uh, partly because, uh, as we're talking about, the basic security cooperation that was there has uh, broken down at the interstate level in, 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 in many regards. I'll ask Khalid you, you first. I think you've really been at ground zero of a particularly chaotic multi-pronged, multipolar, as they like to say, a response in Sudan. In the case of South Sudan, that peace process was much criticized, but you did have a lead EGAD-led process, and you had friends of EGAD, outside partners who were all getting around, and, and it felt like there was you know, a very clear uh, structure to the intervention. In the Sudan case, You've had the AU get involved, and then you've had the UN get involved, and then you've had the trilateral mechanism, which was the UN, AU, and EGAD, and you've had oftentimes the Quad, which is the US, the UK, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, um, also intervening quietly behind the scenes. Khalid, how is this mess of all these different actors, how, how is this working out for Sudanese? The, the problem, I think, for Sudan is that for, for a long time, people understood its geostrategic importance. Um, and when I say people, I mean the international community. But they never really fully engaged with what was going on in Sudan. So when the change happened, they were playing catch up. And to some extent, they're still playing catch up. You have, you know, Sudan is incredibly porous as a country, both geographically, because it has these, you know, colonial borders that don't really exist as borders. And it also is incredibly porous because you had a regime for 30 years that you know, chopped and changed between within its foreign policy. And so it invited all sorts of international bilateral groups into Sudan. So, you know, as we speak, you have Western countries involved in in various guises. You have, you know, the Arab Axis, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE. You have Turkey, you have Qatar, you have, you know, every country effectively has either some kind of economic or political presence in Sudan. That makes it incredibly difficult to negotiate at a time like this when it's so very fragile and when there are so many different protagonists within its political landscape. What we've seen is that all of these different bodies emanating from the international community, whether it's the Quad or the Troika or the trilateral mechanism, which is the AU, EGAD and the UNITAM's mission in country, they're all sort of pulling in different directions. And then, of course, you have completely non-like-minded uh, groups like the Arab Axis, who are also, of course, pulling in a different direction. And they all have different interests in Sudan. They all have different values that they bring to their foreign policy approaches to Sudan. So for the pro-democracy movement, not only do they have to navigate the very different and competing domestic political environment, they also have to manage the very competing international environment. So what we have right now, for example, is the Quad really taking the lead with the trilateral mechanism taking a back seat for various reasons. And they're taking a lead in trying to push through some kind of deal between pro-democracy actors and the generals. Now, for obvious reasons, including recent history, that's not a very good idea, particularly if it's a rushed deal. And it's going to be very difficult for the street to accept. So it's also uh, quite futile, I would say. But a lot of energy is being expended on trying to make this deal happen. Now, Again, this comes back to how well does the international community know Sudan? And the answer, again, seems to be not very well at all, despite so far two or three years of access. So 
not only do you have these competing approaches on Sudan, but this lack of unity within the international community about how they want to deal with the current going on in Sudan, not necessarily longer term foreign policy directives, is that it allows the regime in Khartoum to play off one side against the other. You know, the regime is very good, having learned from Bashir, at playing off, you know, Saudi Arabia and the UAE against Qatar and Turkey, you know, Egypt against Ethiopia. And it's been doing that quite successively and in doing so has managed to survive. Now, what is quite clear is that for the Western countries who are interested, more interested, I would say, in some kind of civilian democratic dispensation in Sudan, for them to be able to reach out to the Arab Axis countries in particular, they're not going to do so on a pro-democracy ticket because those Arab Axis countries are not interested in a democracy either in Sudan or indeed in their own countries. What you are going to get them on board, how you are going to get them on board is on a security ticket. Having an Islamo-military regime like Bashir's in Sudan, given the current political moment, is a danger not just to the Horn of Africa region, but also to the Red Sea region. And this is why we have seen more engagement, particularly from the Saudis, who are worried of a, of a spillover effect of the conflict and the kind of dynamics that an Islamo-military regime will bring. The concerns from the UAE about the return of the Islamists. There are concerns from places like Israel about funding returning to what they term terrorist groups, as was the case during Bashir. There are concerns from all across the board about the prospect of a Russian nuclear naval base on the Red Sea. And those are the security concerns that seem to be bringing some kind of complementarity in the approaches of the international community. I think that should result in them seeing clearly that supporting the the military in Sudan will always guarantee that instability continues, will always be a potential to see malign actors enter Sudan and remain in Sudan and could indelibly change the Red Sea Basin and the Horn of Africa region. Aleyu, I I know EGAD has has really worked on thinking about how the Horn could have a collective response to some of these external actors, um, including with, with golf actors, which there hasn't been as much of a historic relationship with uh, as some of the Western partners. How do we get to a point for the region where it doesn't feel like this free-for-all in terms of all these external actors? What would a collective approach look like? I think recognizing the, the interests of different actors is the first step. And after recognizing there will be an engagement, you can't just go to a mediation process without actor mapping. And I've seen that happening in the Sudan peace process when South Sudan was leading the mediation. IGAD was providing the backstop to the South Sudanese mediation. It's a bilateral agreement between Sudan and South Sudan to stand into their support of one another. South Sudan or South Sudanese mediator recognized that Sudan had a wide range of actors that were interested in the Sudanese affairs. They were able to navigate through the differences between Saudi Arabia, Emirates in one side, Qatar and Turkey from the other side, and Egypt as well. And we're able to make sure that everybody supports the same process and speaks with the same voice. And and that's why and how they reached the, the agreement. I think the same could be done in the security apparatus in the region. Uh, now IGAD has established uh, office for a special envoy on the Red Sea and the Gulf of Eden because we have other actors uh, from the other side of the the Red Sea. And, and that's why that office is trying also to coordinate their efforts. But perhaps 
You know, one of the elephants in the room is that if member states of EGAD themselves seek bilateral interventions from some of these countries, of course, this is how we often see this play out. It puts the region in a difficult position in terms of any collective strategy because it it doesn't go through any collective mechanism. It goes through these bilateral uh, relationships. Is there any way of sort of binding, getting more consensus from the member states for the benefit of the collective whole um, to reduce this outside influence when, when, when it's often the member states themselves who are inviting these outside actors in? Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's rightly so because they are sovereign independent countries and they, they are entitled to have their bilateral friends and partners, etc. But when we come to do regional initiatives, the recognitions of who is in charge of the intervention matter. And and also it is necessary for member states to recognize that if this is an IGAD region, then the first respondents should be from IGAD. And uh, we've seen that being pushed, pushed back in Ethiopia on the Tigray conflict. It was being pushed back also in Kenya in the 2007 conflict. It's still being pushed back in Sudan of the recent transition issues. But this is the only way to go. Because this is an established international best practice that the, the region responds first, then the African Union responds second, and then overall the United Nations. And, and now in Sudan, the, the situation is not very clear because it was the, the tripatriate uh, arrangements under the United Nations. And, and the African Union and IGAD came to be part of that process because that's the highest we could go. Now, even the tripatriate itself is being pushed around for forum shopping. You, you hear an initiative of a civil society, sometimes initiatives of political elders like Aljet initiatives. You get the Arab initiatives and you get that the parties are choosing between what they prefer and what they like which means they, there will be hardly an agreement or a way out unless there is a realization that we need to unify our approach and we need to create a recognizable, legitimate process that will help us lead the process towards real discussions rather than forum shopping. Because forum shopping can only delay. It never delivers. We've seen that in South Sudan where you have more than three processes. At the time, IGAD had a process. There was an Arusha process, and there was also an attempt to have an East African process. However, IGAD was able to bring all the parties together and and say, hey, you could have your own process. Make sure that you are contributing to our process, but it's going to be one. That is what is needed in the the Sudanese process, and I thought that was done by the the tripatriate uh, arrangements. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Why not? Because you're right, you know, the, 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 the presence of many different fora does not necessarily threaten a singular approach, but it does require one of those bodies, namely, let's say, the tripartite mechanism, because so well placed, to group and bridge all of these different initiatives. But that's not happening. Yes, if, if you have the, the situation where one of the major parties, for example, prefers a specific mediator, I think what is needed is not the actual mediation process. What is needed is the people doing mediation now sitting together and deciding this is how we're going to approach it. So Simon, um, security discussions on the horn right now are, are quite scattered. 
EGAD isn't really the center of it any anymore. The African Union is involved in, in some cases uh, with some of the countries. And then you have uh, Washington talking to Gulf capitals, Washington talking to European capitals, European capitals talking to Gulf capitals, and, and everyone engaging these, these sort of regional capitals. Is there a better way of doing this, or is this just the reality of the political moment that we're at? I wish it was a bit as simple as you say that why can't we have one main actor bring together everyone? I wish it yeah. was, but unfortunately, no, because many of the actors come in their own right and they don't want to, to integrate themselves with the others because they believe in themselves. The Gulf communities tend to work on their own. They don't want to really play along with the people here on the other side. Washington is very impulsive. They tend to use many, many avenues, and they want to make sure that you either, if you're a local player, play alongside them and with, within them, or they won't really come to you. I think some of these initiatives, I participated in the number of these processes, the IGAD one, Somalia, South Sudan, DR Congo, and all these. It is very hard to really bring most of these players together unless they find that you have built a foundation that is very strong. And to me, the conviction lies with the regional actors, people who are closer around to borrow his arguments, people who take the, 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 the heat if there is a problem, and, and they understand the terrain of the problem, and they are able to engage with the actors they know, not deceit. They understand the persons, the characters, and the characterization of the process. So those tend to give us easier and more long-lasting solutions than these more external people who want to claim they know more or yet they want to rely on some other sources, secondary sources, and so on. So we've talked about the war in Ethiopia. We've talked about the, the very poor state of uh, many of these quote-unquote transitions in the region. We've spent a lot of time in particular talking about the, the Sudanese transition and about the demands for change from the youth as well as all the external actors. Kolud, there's there's no easy answers to any or many of these questions. But do you have any parting thoughts on, on what can be done better? I think we need to have a very radical rethink about what the purpose of regional organizations is, not just IGAD, but also the AU. But if we take IGAD as an example, you currently have the head of IGAD who is a coup leader. And that has to give us some pause for thought. I mean, it is no wonder that EGAD cannot be as effective as it is perhaps intended to be when that is the state of play. But I think, you know, beyond these institutions, and I think these are what might be called Tinkerbell institutions, you need to believe in them for them to work. And frankly, I don't think anyone believes in them. There is a sense right now that the region has lost its re- the, the regional hegemon in, in Ethiopia. I don't think that the presence of a regional hegemon, and people always point to Nigeria and ECOWAS, is enough to keep these institutions going or is enough to provide that kind of linchpin of stability in the region. I think you need certainly more than one country to bring about that kind of stability. And I think you need the the, the leaders of these countries, whether they are constitutional leaders or unconstitutional leaders as we have in Sudan, you need them to support each other but also within formal institutions, not just informally, because right now they operate a you scratch my back, I scratch yours kind of approach, which we saw in 
South Sudan hosting the, the Khartoum or Sudan's peace agreement and Khartoum hosting South Sudan's peace agreement. And none, neither of those peace agreements actually led us to any peace, nor indeed any agreement. And I think that is entirely intentional and designed to keep the protagonists currently as heads of state where they are. So all of these things need a radical rethink. And I think it behooves us both in the region and internationally to invest time to do that. Because as I said earlier, we are looking at a major shift in politics. And I think doing things in the same way, business as usual, is not really going to get us to where we want to go and actually is going to increase our frustration in the policy space in the peace space, in the mediation space, in the political space more generally. And more importantly, it will obfuscate our ability to see new ways of of doing things if we continue in the same way we have been. And what might a radical rethink look like? Okay, so first of all, countries that have had coups or unconstitutional changes of government and have been suspended by the AU should not be heads of regional organization. I'm not sure that's that radical. Low-hanging fruit, I think. (laughs) How are you going to impose that if there is no meeting where a regular meeting where you could discuss even the change of power? It it has to exchange hands every one year or two years. That meeting is not happening because of the situation in Ethiopia or the situation in Sudan. But surely if one country who is head of IGAD has an unconstitutional change of government, and you've already said IGAD rules mandate that the head has to be a prime minister, not the head of the armed forces, then surely that would bring about some kind of emergency measure. It cannot be that you have someone who has been accused of a whole variety of different crimes and who has seized power unconstitutionally is the head of a regional organization. That regional organization wants to have a shred of credibility and legitimacy to its citizens. The other thing is I think we need to move away from state-based or state-centric approaches. You know, you have, as Alea was saying earlier, all of these different Youth-led, yes, but generally movements that reflect a very young population and so are credible because just of the vast amount of people that they can represent. There need to be ways of of getting those people into processes that are currently taking place if they choose to be and if they don't choose to be of coming up with new processes that they feel that they can own and more importantly allowing them the space as we were saying earlier to create these new pathways and to create these new processes and to create these new institutions if we continue with the same institutions the same pathways and same processes of course we're going to get the same results which as we know have been quite subpar Thank you all for that fascinating discussion. Um, I think <laughs> I think we have to leave it there, um, but, but thank you all for your time. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group. This episode was made in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES, and produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 